Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Now, today, we are actually jumping back into this series on habit that we are doing, talking about the roughly 40% of our lives that we engage in without thinking about it. And last week, our goal was to talk a little bit about our theology of habit to some degree. See, because most of us live between various forces. We live in our minds and in our bodies with their virtues and their vices, And then there's our culture's influence on how we think about habit formation and how we should nix certain habits, all in an effort to tap into our unused potential and to take advantage of our inner boss level that we haven't tapped into yet. And then also to see, we see this in a rash of books and blogs and talks where we see this sort of invitation towards the life of the rich and the successful and those who have it all figured out. That's this force that we live beside all the time. It's over here. And then over here, there's the way that the scriptures tend to speak about our habits, where ancient authors have this tendency to sound like they are giving prescriptive instructions, things like do this, stop that, repeat those things. And in between these two forces, we're often left feeling like the life we're meant to live is, well, it's unattainable, either in choosing the right kinds of patterns or in getting away from the ones that we kind of suspect we should leave behind, which is why we talked about how, yes, there are some universal principles that we can find and use to step forward in our living, but the means to do those things well that probably isn't going to come from reading those books and completing all those steps, but actually from learning to trust that the grace we need to change is personal. And that our efforts to change and shift are best rooted not in somebody else's vision of success, but in a steady pursuit of our own wholeness. And we talked about how Jesus kind of seems to teach us this. See, when asked in a conversation about how to find eternal life, Jesus actually flipped that question back onto his interviewer. And the lawyer who was asking the question quotes the Hebrew Bible grandly saying, well, I think that we might find eternal life if, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, do this and you will live. Which, if we aren't careful, can sound an awful lot like a command to go and live an exacting life of habit building and implementation of starts and stops, pursuing this lofty vision of life that we won't ever actually grab hold of, where instead, when we look at the vocabulary of that story, it's not actually saying that at all but rather it's an invitation toward this idea that the fullest life we could live isn't at the end of endless pursuit, no, but in our humble attempts to offer our affection to the divine and to our world with all that we are. And in this light, habits aren't just a means to excellence or perfection, they're a pathway to being integrated. Our emotions and our psyche and our bodies and our intelligence brought together. And when we pursue practices of rest and enjoyment and health and pleasure and loving our neighbor and feeding our soul and speaking kindly and stretching our minds, being kind to ourselves and those we meet, all of these, Jesus says, are a surefire way to find eternal life. 
And as we jump in now, would you join me in a quick moment of quiet? Let's pray. God, creating, restoring, comforting force in the world and in our lives. We thank you this morning for the gift of community. Locally, how we experience it in the faces and in the hands that we see here. And then also in this stretching out into the mystery of the church in the world. How we're connected to those who serve and work for justice. Those advocating for those on the margins all over this place. And this humbles us and it calls us forward into life. And this is why we ask for this morning. We ask for courage to contend for justice and truth. We ask for the gift of radical love for those who we disagree with, for those who are marginalized, for those who might even today, even in our space, feel like they are far from you. We ask too for wisdom to see clearly and to act graciously and to hold the mystery of grace with enough space so that others might be able to reach it too. We ask, be our source, be our light, be our hope. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So sad. Okay, so today we are going to move from talking about our theology of habit to something we might call our spirituality of habit. And all that I mean by that is that there are some nuts and some bolts and some practices to what we are discussing this morning. And to do that, we need to chat about what maps and counting and brains and desire have in common. But to start off, just a quick story. When my wife and I were first together, we lived in Toronto for about three and a half years. And it was a big city, lots of culture. We absolutely loved it there. But in direct correlation to this big city piece is a key fact that you need to be aware of, that Darlene doesn't really have a clear sense of direction. And that might be putting it lightly because at least half of our marital fights and tension are directly connected to how I offer directions based on compass readings because, well, like, isn't that what everybody does, right? No? Okay. This is just a way of saying that I like to give directions by saying, okay, so you're going to go to a certain street and you're going to turn north. Or I'll say, you're going to go to the southeast corner of that intersection because that's the only place I can pick you up and you're going to stay there. And Darlene does not live in the world like this. She feels her way through the world. She looks for landmarks and she tries to remember the last time she was in a place. And if she isn't familiar with the route or the location, she literally could end up anywhere. Oh, and GPSs weren't always a thing, right? So one night while we're living there in this city, I get a call from her saying, I'm lost. I have no idea where I am. I'm just driving and nothing looks familiar. And I mean, like, just stop is what you want to say. So I got her to start naming streets, trying to figure out where she is. And it wasn't making sense. She swore that she was heading in the right direction. She was coming to actually pick me up and she thought that she turned uptown. And at some point, the streets weren't coming together in the right order for me. And so I asked her if she had crossed this familiar east-west road in the center of Toronto. And she said, yes. I was like, oh, brilliant, we finally figured this out. And then she said, yeah, actually, I passed that a long time ago. And it dawned on me that instead of getting closer to me, 
she was headed downtown in the opposite direction and that I was gonna be waiting for another hour or so. And listen, I'm not trying to make Darlene look bad. She's actually not here to defend herself, so that's not kind. But the point is that we probably all have the experience of getting lost where we, where we found that each turn we took and each choice we made brought us either closer to our intended goal or it got us even more confused which is this image of how this, ma- this guy named James Smith talks about our habits and our practices. Because he contends as human beings, we actually live our lives by adopting ultimate ends or goals to aim at, locations to end up. And where many of the big decisions and the actions and paths we take are implicitly and ultimately aimed at trying to live out some vision of the good life that we love and we want to pursue. So for instance, think about the way you think about relationships, who you might wanna be with or how you want your family to look or function. Or think about how you think about money, what's enough, what you think is ideal. Or think of the people you admire, your parent or a boss, a mentor, someone that you read or someone you follow on Twitter perhaps. And how these people's lives shape how you measure what's good and pleasurable and how you pursue a life that looks like that. And what Smith contends is that these pictures we carry of what's ultimate and meaningful are often formed in a non-cognitive way. We don't pick them up on purpose. They brush up against us as we travel through our culture. We experience them in our upbringing as we are children and the practices and rhythms that we encounter along the way, these things sort of rub off on us and this is the key. We pursue and attempt to emulate these things with our habits. Which just means that whether they're big or small, toxic or life-giving, habits are ultimately trying to make us into a certain kind of person. The implication being that there are no neutral ones. Which is just like Darlene trying to find her destination on that dark and rainy evening where every choice she made Every problem-solving technique she used, every turn she took, every thought she had, right or wrong, about where she was, each one shaped her direction. And I think this idea offers us a really profound and practical suggestion for how you might consider how you live your life. To ask yourself, what kind of person is a particular practice trying to turn me into? And listen, with good habits, this is easy where our sleep or organizational habits or savings so that we can go on a vacation or whatever or be generous, these things often correlate to our health and our livelihood, to pleasant kind of results. But we need to do it with our bad habits too. When we think about how our temper or what we do when we are lonely or how our consumption, how these things correlate to a kind of person that we're becoming. And of course, I want to admit that not all habits shape us equally. Smith provides this helpful distinction between those that are thin, like brushing your teeth, or what you eat for breakfast every morning, or what you read right before you go to bed. Those kinds of routines tend to be mundane. They don't touch on our identity, which is why he compares them to habits that are thick or meaningful. These are things that signal our values, the things we want. And I can't tell you which are which for you. But these thick ones tend to be things like where and how we worship and where we volunteer, where we give our money, where and what, or what we listen to while we are commuting. 
and how we choose to rest and unwind. And the point is that by paying attention to our habits in this way, this is actually spiritual practice in that it helps us in our way making because it shows us where we are on the map and where we're headed and how we're getting there. When we realize that some thin practice in our life is actually connected to something that we're seeking, like how an exercise routine in your life that seems really innocent is actually rooted in your insecurity about your own body, for example, or how your ethical food choices are actually rooted in this vision of a flourishing planet and therefore really important to you. But it also happens too when we consider the most meaningful things that and the most meaningful things that we practice and where they're taking us. Like how participating in a faith community like this one or the one that you love, how it shapes your generosity and your openness to others. Or how a shift from talk radio to podcast, for instance, might help you curb the anger you feel towards your coworkers with differing views and inform an expansive goodness that you want to be more true of you. All of these things teach us and show us to see ourselves on a map and they locate us on it, realizing that the kind of attention that we need to see ourselves is deeply intrinsic to our practice of faith. Now, that's not the only connection between habit and spiritual practice we need to look at today. And not because there's some program that everyone here just needs to get on with. No, but because, as we talked about last week, lots of research points to how each of us has to chart an individual course toward maturity in our habits. For example, there is no universal guideline for how all of us would become super fit or how all of us might be able to better manage our time not one system works for everyone. And with that said though, there are some areas that we all tend to focus on when we are pursuing habits of development and change. And Gretchen Rubin, who's a researcher, she recently wrote a book on these things. She calls these the essential seven. And she lists them, she says what we eat and drink, regular exercise or activity, how we use our money, how we rest, habits of accomplishing more or delaying less, habits of simplifying and organizing, decluttering, and habits directly related to our relationships. And just for the record, Ruben actually argues convincingly that we should focus on our habits of sleep and movement and eating and drinking right and uncluttering first, because the positive impact of getting those things right has this ability to influence our capacity to build good habits in other parts of our lives. But I'll let you look that up on your own and see if it works for you. The point is that you probably see some area that you are working on in that list because there are commonalities in our experience. While we have to negotiate rhythms and patterns for the work for our own lives, we do so parallel to those who are around us. But what makes Rubin's research so valuable in my opinion is how she identifies major tendencies that certain types of people have when they're trying to cultivate a good practice. For example, how someone who stays up late, who is highly creative and challenges the administrative norms at their company is going to need different techniques for habits of time management than the person who gets up early and is bookish and likes following the rules. And I love how Ruben describes the pillars of habit that all these kinds of people have to engage. These four strategies that stand out in helping us change. 
And she names them. She calls them monitoring, foundation, or focusing on the right things first, scheduling, and accountability, she calls them. And listen, we don't, we don't have time to walk through each of these as spiritual practice, though we are gonna touch on the fourth a little bit next week when we talk about habits of community. But I do wanna look at monitoring for a second, this first one. See, the basic principle in this is this, that what you pay attention to and what you track and measure in your life, you have self-awareness of that thing. And self-awareness is the fuel for the engine of your character and your self-control. And this applies to so many things. And scholars point to how measuring is so important because when we guess at what we're doing, we are often off by a lot. So much research points to this. We'll underestimate how much we're eating. We'll underestimate how much sleep we're actually getting or how much Netflix or YouTube we watch or how much we spend on alcohol in a year. Lots of stuff. And Ruben is so helpful because she notes that tracking and measuring things is tired and tedious work, which is probably why it's best. If you want to try doing that this week, you need to pick something that really matters to you and start counting that. But why this struck me as a place where we might see our habits as spiritual practice is because lots of what we might want to take up monitoring for is to close the gaps in our life. Counting things helps us clean up what needs to be changed. It gives us the data we need maybe to talk to somebody that we feel needs to change. And these are all great things. Choosing this kind of self-awareness can be really super productive. But this got me wondering if there isn't more we should count. Because having a logbook for your vices, that might make sense for some of you. But what about choosing to count divine moments too? And that got me thinking about how Aaron Beck, who's the founder of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, contends that people who are in committed relationships, they find it easy to notice what their partners do wrong, but not what they do right. So he suggests that people keep a diary to track their partner's considerate behavior, which one study discovered, this resulted in 70% of couples doing the tracking reporting an improved connection or relationship. And what struck me about that is how rarely I monitor the grace I experience. I mean, some of us might be familiar with the exam and prayer practice where at the end of each day, we try to call through our day and we think about the moments where we may have seen or experienced undeserved goodness. And I know I don't do this enough, which is why I thought it might be super helpful for some of us to think about counting the good instead of just starting a log so that we get to bed on time or get outside more or trying to track our purchases so that we stay balanced and can buy what we want, what, if, what would it look like if we started monitoring grace? Paying attention to the kindness that that awkward or short-tempered coworker offers you or noting the way that a friend reaches out or makes space for you. Maybe appreciating how a strained relationship has actually shifted. Maybe it hasn't completely resolved itself, but it's better than it was. Or maybe taking stock of the ways that you have changed. The steps that you have taken, the character that has emerged in you over time, the vices that you no longer grapple with. Do you count these things? Because I want to encourage you to take the time to make a record of more than just your shortcomings. 
and cultivate the habit of gratitude, which builds the kind of self-awareness in us because we realize how faithful God has been to us in all the parts of our story. Which brings us to brains because we cannot discuss habit without observing how closely it's tied to the basal ganglia, which is this little tiny chunk in the center of our head. And physicians and scientists have discovered that this part stores patterns so that the rest of our brain can get on with the work that it needs to do, saving energy and effort for all that it does. And basically, this part of our brain creates automatic codes and sequences which we rely on every day. Codes like how to open an oven without getting hurt, or to not stand too close when waiting for a bus, or to get our shower to just the right temperature, or to drive our vehicle at highway speeds. And yes, to know what to reach for when we're anxious or stressed. Our brains do these things because we've built a habit. And basically what happens is a three-step loop. And this picture up here shows you a loop for craving distraction. There's a trigger or a cue that tells your brain to go into autopilot. Then there's the routine, opening your email, and this is a physical or a mental or emotional response. And then there's the reward, which is why your brain remembers this loop in the end. And discovering this loop has been so important for scientists and clinicians because it shows us how once a habit forms, the brain actually stops functioning and participating in decisions. It gives energy to other things. It just lets the loop do it. Meaning that unless we deliberately fight a routine or we find a new one, the cycle unfolds whenever the trigger happens. And we should actually be happy that our brains do this because if you actually had to remember everything and process everything and work through every last detail, you wouldn't be able to function. In fact, people who suffer injuries to this part of their brain often end up restricted by mental paralysis. And what's interesting is how marketers from things from toothpaste to Cinnabon have helped us understand this loop because they've uncovered that the surest way to spark and complete the loop is to create a craving or desire that keeps it cycling. And product developers taught people to crave that fresh, tingly feeling that you get after you use toothpaste, which is why we all brush our teeth today when 100 years ago, nobody did. And it's why Cinnabon tends to locate its stores away from other food vendors, giving you time to wander and look and keep smelling and crave until you see sugar and carbs and have no defense against it. We actually all know these feelings, which curiously corresponds with something that early Christian author James wrote about in a letter that he gave. See, at the beginning of this document, James was trying to explain how and why some of Jesus' first followers were experiencing hardship. And it appears that some people might have been trying to say that all kinds of hardship come from God, and James disagreed, and he said, no, actually, each person experiences these things when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And that might seem like an overly provocative image to connect this whole conversation about habit to because James isn't pulling any punches in this passage. 
He's offering a picture of what happens in our lives when we are lured away by our cravings and our desires, when these things go unchecked. How these things produce brokenness in us sometimes, brokenness that leads us into darkness. And to be honest, that's sometimes where we think the scriptures stop when they speak about our desire and our craving, these things that inform our habits often, the things we do without thinking about them, though we wish we could change. But there's a key observation we need to make about the term for desire used here, epithymia, because the term itself is neutral. In fact, it's the same term that Jesus uses in his last meal with his friends when he tells them, I've I've greatly desired epithymia, that's the verb, to eat this meal with you before I suffer which is just an example of how this term, that it gains its connotation from the things being desired. And James's dark progression is talking about broken and unhealthy desires, but those aren't the only desires that we have. And that is a significant point. One that is somewhat personal for me because I can still remember several years ago when I read this passage in James and this distinction popped out at me because like you, I knew my bad habits, my laziness, my envy, my selfishness, my self-criticism. It's actually a much longer list than that. And it dawned on me how so much of my spiritual energy and practice how so much of my effort to correct and improve myself, addressing habits along the way, that energy was aimed at the consequences of my flaws and at the harmful behaviors, the things that might fall under the category of sin in James's list and at the death that I was starting to feel in certain parts of my life when in fact, it seemed like I had it all wrong. And that if James was onto something, then maybe a better way to live was to let go of a spirituality where I feared and fought the consequences of my bad habits. And instead, I started paying attention to my desires, which aren't always inherently wrong or harmful on their own. Things like my craving for people's love and attention my longing for connection and to not want to be alone, my desire for significance and to matter to do something that changes the world. And I found that when I started there, listening to my cravings as a way of opening myself up to grace and what it might bring to me, sometimes I found that grace came as comfort in the spiritual practices I pursued. Sometimes it came to me as a reminder that I actually needed to get some help. Sometimes it came to me with the encouragement to foster different kinds of cravings and desires in my life. But then, too, inversely, I learned to see that some of my desires, the things I want at the most intrinsic level, when full grown, those things don't give birth to death, they give birth to wholeness, to habits of work and rest that sustain me, and to practices of friendship and creativity that have moved me forward to where I am today. And I have found that the longer I live in that wholeness, I find that it sparks meaning and life that I couldn't have imagined. So, as you come to the 
threshold of this week, friends, I hope that you'll take up the spiritual practice of reviewing where your habits come from. May you find courage to give yourself space to ask what kind of person is this habit or pattern turning me into? And may you take up the challenge of modernizing not just what needs to change, but also where you already are, learning to count the good. And may you have patience to look first at your desires, owning maybe where they've grown into harm, but learning to ask where they might be leading you into all of God's goodness. Let's pray. God, we're present in this moment to the mystery of ancient story and modern science. The way in which what we learn about our bodies and our brains, about our physiology, about the loops that we live in has a way of helping us to understand what some of our ancient wisdom, what it might actually do when we live with it. I'm grateful for that tension today and for the ways in which I feel invited to be awake to where I am on the map of my own life and to take up the spiritual practice of paying attention to cultivate self-awareness. I pray for those of us who, maybe that feels like a bit of a hurdle, maybe to come clean and to be honest about who and what we are right now, that feels like a threatening prospect. Give us grace to step toward you and to open our hearts, even just a sliver, to the goodness that you bring. Give us courage now as we walk into the things we do automatically and give us space to count the good and to discern and hear what our desires might be telling us about the wholeness you're inviting us toward. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.